we're coming full term into our uh, prayer series. It's been nine months now, but we're just going to keep it locked up in the womb for a little longer to make it extra good. We've been talking about prayer for a while now. Our community, if you haven't, if you're new here, our community is a little slow um, or troubled or something. It takes us a long time to um, work our way through anything because apparently we have a lot of questions. <laughs> we're that student. Um, and, and some comments as well. <laughs> Any questions? I have a comment. That's not what I asked for. Um, <laughs> any of you who have been to Bible college or know exactly what I'm talking about? I have a small sermon for you. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about prayer. And uh, last week we dealt with the uh, cherry topic of prayers of vengeance. Um, I hope all of you have been praying some. Um, which I found really, really helpful. Thank you, Rod. And off the back of that, we thought we'd um, carry on uh, talking about some more of the things that lie below our prayer lives. We're going to start with um, this little number, this cheery little ditty from, from, uh, from David in the Psalms, Psalm 139, with the director of music, so if that person's here, um, of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. How does that sit with you? What about me? makes you sing? What about it makes you wither? Any comments on this one? No scorecards, just comments. Who Who is he lying down with? Yes. I think we're all a little aware of that, aren't we? Yes. What time he went out <laughs> and who he came back with? Lord? How does it make you feel? Ruth likes it. Wait, wait, pause for the podcasters. Some people are too lazy to come, so. Uh, this, this makes me feel like I'm known, and it makes me feel like in the background that there's a plan and I'm a part of it, and even if I screw it all up, I'm still on that track and still on that plan, and I'm known and I'm loved, regardless. That's a good thing. That's really lovely. I feel that as well, and then at the same time, I go, all bollocks. Um, yeah, it kind of has a great part and a, like, fantastic part. <laughs> this is the table to be at. It's all the coffee we're having. Um, uh, what I like is that, I think it is, uh, whether I can speak for myself, but just the, the feeling that sometimes you've got hidden parts to yourself and this kind of says, oh, there are no parts that are hidden from God. Um, and that, in the same way as Leah, can be a very a deeply reassuring thing, but it can be a bit of a concern, you know, but I think it's a, it's a really lovely idea. Um, other thing that, I, that occurs to me is that your reaction to it depends on what you consider God's gaze to be like. So if it's a loving gaze, then it's liberating to know that everything is seen because you don't have to hide. Um, but if it's a judging gaze, then it feels like Big Brother and it's absolutely terrifying. 
you weren't supposed to wrap up the message quite yet, Rod. That was supposed to be for <laughs> supposed to be for later. I was thinking something similar to Rod because it. Well, <laughs> I might not be back for a third week if you keep talking to me like that, Shane. <laughs> it forces me uh, to remind myself that God's kind and it forces me to remind myself that God's patient because then, yeah, like Rod said, it is very intimidating. But, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. One. Worst spot to sit. It, it kind of, for me, it kind of gets me in my own neurotic space of like, oh, oh you know, my thoughts, there's some weird thoughts there. And I'm, my immediate action is like, what am I doing wrong? Um, so it's kind of not very comforting. I'm going into that Adam and Eve like, oh, oh, we're naked. Oh, hide, hide. connected to thinking about what we think of God's gaze. It's also uh, to do with um, our gaze towards ourselves. Like, what what do we think of our, you know, innermost hidden things? And, yeah, we can kind of project that onto, onto God, how we feel about being seen. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about what lies below. Um, this kind of came up from last week, talking about prayers of vengeance and to give you a brief synopsis, Rod, just to save you listening to the podcast if you missed it. I like to make things easy around here. Rod was talking about prayers of vengeance in the psalm and Psalms and about how, as kind of, you know, well pulled together good people, we are shocked and horrified that there's uh, prayers for vengeance in the Psalms, that prayers that God would, you know, smite people and do horrid things. Um, but what Rod kind of elaborated on was the idea that this, um, these vengeful thoughts sit inside each and every one of us, and unless we confront them and own them and accept them as a part of our impulse um, that we then get to direct and choose what to do with, then we end up suppressing them, and that sense, that desire for vengeance comes out in other ways. See earlier, cutting sarcasm. Um, and so this week I was thinking I really wanted to talk about grief and lament and about how for some of us grief and lament is really difficult to bring to God for various reasons, um, that we end up um, shielding God from our grief and shielding ourselves from our grief. But to save us a few weeks, I thought I'd broaden the scope of this week to talk about all kinds of stuff that sit um, below the surface of our prayer life if we're not careful, if we don't um, pay attention to how we sit with prayer that there can be kind of this surface level to our prayer life and then a whole heap of other things which sit submerged. Um, often unthinkingly and for many different reasons, we instinctively filter our prayer to keep a manageable and safe distance from what lies below in the gaze of God. Um, this is brought to the fore when we stop using prayer as a tool for just asking. I think asking it's a really easy mode to sit with in prayer sometimes because it's a kind of a list that you tick off. But if you think of prayer as an, the idea of sitting with the divine, um, being still with God, being known by God, then all of a sudden 
this realm that sits below the surface of prayer um, can easily become exposed in a way we're not necessarily ready for. For many, the idea of just being with God, um, becoming aware of God's closeness is a, is a terrifying thought, a terrifying idea. Unsurprisingly, this is also the case for ourselves. The idea of being alone with ourselves, sitting still with ourselves um, is also terrifying, which is why we fill our lives to capacity to avoid ever having to sit still long enough to face what lies below. But why, and why especially with God? Why, why is this, this kind of dual world um, of what we're happy to bring to God, what we're happy to sit in the presence of, and what we end up submerging or hiding or um, distracting ourselves from? And I'd argue it has something to do with romance. This is, we're going to um, quote a little from John O'Donohue, who's one of our FNCC man crushes. Um, he's a, uh, an Irishman. Um, he's passed away now, so if you were thinking of marrying him, too late. Um, he's a wonderful, wise human. He's uh, a Celtic mystic. He's uh, very much into um, poetry and um, the Celtic tradition. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Anamkara, which is worth reading if you're interested in such things. Um, and this is a quote from, from it. Real intimacy is a sacred experience. It never exposes its secret trust and belonging to the voyeuristic eye of a neon culture. Real intimacy is of the soul, and the soul is reserved. Read that again. Real intimacy is a sacred experience. It never exposes its secret trust and belonging to the voyeuristic eye of a neon culture. Real intimacy is, the, is of the soul, and the soul is reserved. We instinctively protect our vulnerable parts when we feel unsafe. He talks in Anamkara about two kinds of light, and he references one of them there, the, the neon or fluorescent light of our culture. He, he um, invites you to think about the number of um, intimate conversations you've had under the, the fluorescent light of an office cubicle workspace. That kind of white penetrating light that if you take a photo in it, you look somehow ghostly or like the contrast is set too high. This kind of light. <laughs> I'll filter that one out. Um, <laughs> this, this kind of light that exposes this glaring that is bright for those of you listening at home. Um, it's a picture of a person sitting in an interrogation room with a spotlight on them, overexposed. It says the light of our day is the kind of light that seeks to um, know everything rationally, but um, doesn't always seek to understand. A light that has little compassion. He contrasts this with what um, the Celts called kind light. Firelight, candlelight. Soft light. The Celts call it the light that's friend to the darkness. Imagine yourself in those two spaces between this one and this one and being invited to tell your most intimate secrets. 
there's something about fires and candles that open us up, that soften us, that make us feel safe. And we know this light as well with people, that some people have a kind light about them and others a harsh and glaring gaze. That some people make us feel warm and safe. That our vulnerability won't be exposed in a way that will make us feel ashamed. And for others, their gaze feels harsh and critical and cold. And it's much the same with God. I'm just going to talk about a few modes of God that some of us are familiar with that may, that may kind of like drive stuff below. The first one I'm talking about is the spotlight God, which is this image here. Many of us have grown up with under the unblinking and cold gaze of a holy God. We have a deep sense of the kind of good person that God wants us to be and know all too well what kind of person we really are. From an early age, we learn that it's much easier to project an image of ourselves that God wants than it is to sit with the image that we know we really are. The desire to please God or be seen by God can easily be distorted by showing God what we think God wants to see. Last week we talked about this with vengeance, that one of the reasons we don't bring vengeance up in prayer is because we ourselves are surprised to find thoughts of vengeance happening because those are things that we shouldn't feel. And so instinctively we suppress them. Instinctively we make sure that we cover them over. The idea of bringing prayers of vengeance to God, to, to, to let these impulses sit before God, is something that we're just too ashamed to face. We divide confession into that which God can handle and still love us and that which we must hide. We all know that there are kinds of weaknesses that God can handle and help us with, i.e. telling white lies or saying shoot too often or um, as one of my um, former small group young people once said, um, the thing I'm struggling with at the moment is I read my Bible too much in church when I should be listening to the sermon. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's the, kind of, that's the kind of sin God can handle. You know, sin that's actually something really good. But we instinctively know that there are things about us that we must never admit even to ourselves, let alone to God. Lest God finds out that we're not just a sinner, but a really horrible, bad kind of sinner that would make him cut us off forever and label us one of those people who we all know we're not supposed to be. When in actual fact, all of us do battle with these things inside of ourselves that we're deeply ashamed of. They're things that sit in our present and in our past and quite possibly in our future that we struggle to confront because we don't know how we'd even love ourselves through them, let alone accept the gaze of God. We sense that there is no way we can truly be loved completely as we are, so we spend our time holding God at arm's length, making sure that while in theory God loves us because she loves everyone, we never sit too long with the possibility of receiving the kind of overwhelming kindness, compassion, and being known that would come from being held by God in this way. 
David Benner, um, in a book, a beautiful book called um, The Gift of Being Yourself, says this, the change of which I speak is a change from living life as a painful test to prove that you deserve to be loved, to living it as an unceasing yes to the truth of that belovedness. The change of which I speak is the change from living life as a painful test to prove that you deserve to be loved, to living it as an unceasing yes to the truth of that belovedness. This is how we protect we protect God from ourselves because we don't truly think that God can handle who we really are. The second kind of the second view of God I think that drives things underground is this idea of the hovering God. That God, the God that kind of floats through history three or four feet above the ground so that God doesn't get their feet dirty. Prayer can feel like a different mode than the rest of our lives. It functions a bit like the kind of church that you dress up for, the place you pretend you weren't all shouting blue murder at each other the entire way in the car and then paste on comic smiles <laughs> to let everyone know that you're a happy family. Prayer can feel a bit like that. Like you kind of live your life on one plane and then you go to approach prayer and you quickly, you know, tidy up the messes and then present the image that you think the hovering God wants to, be, wants to see. Because God floats above, God has a set of ideals that don't really match the reality of life. The hovering God is the unrealistic God. The God life is nice and quaint and twee, but we don't want to break it to God that life doesn't really pan out like that. So we pretend instead. Grief can feel like this for some people, especially if it feels like grief is taking too long and stopping us from being the happy, grateful, hopeful Christian we were supposed to be. So we suppress it. And sometimes we suppress it at the encouragement of others. The The third gaze is just the God that's failed. And we talked about it this God earlier in the series, the disappearing dad. Sometimes we hide things from God because we're so disappointed at God's failure that we can't bear to bring up the idea that we feel like God's failed. Um, I do this with pain. Uh, are there any Enneagram people around? Mm. We can talk about the Enneagram another day, but it's, um, it's basically a, it's a way of understanding yourself. Um, there's nine numbers and all of you are one of them. And if you don't think you are, you're probably a nine. Um, it's a way of understanding yourself through what drives you. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, which means that my core, my core driver or my core sin is avoiding pain. Sevens are called enthusiasts and they're enthusiastic because they distract themselves from pain all the time. And so we invest ourselves in um, food and drink and adventures and exciting things and anything that prevents us from stopping long enough to let that rising tide of pain (laughs) well up. Fortunately, God be praised, I've had enough pain and trauma in my life brought to my doorstep that um, I've had to confront some of it before, you know, it covers my whole house. Um, for someone who was brought up in a place of such love and privilege, somehow I've managed to find enough trauma to keep me going. Um, in fact, I spent quite a few years on the cusp of so much pain that I didn't think that I'd 
ever know what it would be like to not live in despair. Um, it became something of an expected state for me, one that I didn't think I was going to be able to return from. And the weird thing is, having kind of spent years and years being slowly dug out of that kind of pain um, and that kind of despair and slowly kind of pulling my mental health back together, you think that that would make you really good at dealing with pain and being honest about things. Strangely enough, <laughs> if you've had your reserves tested that much, as a seven, what you really want to do, you don't know if you're ever really seriously ready to face that kind of trauma again. So you find yourself going, thank God that's over and I never have to go to that place again and then just denying pain at a whole new level. You become an expert. Um, I remember a few years back um, in this job actually, th- this, this place has been something of a, you know, a positive news story in my life, a place where finally there was a place where I could kind of be at peace with myself while doing things in Christian land, which is an incredibly unnerving experience for a person like me. Um, but there's an, there's an element of this job that was killing me, but um, I just couldn't admit it because this was supposed to be the good place where everything worked out. And I remember seeing, I went, went and saw a psychiatrist. I've got a, a lot of mental health stuff in my family. And so I went and saw a psychiatrist. I'd seen psychologists before. I wanted to see a psychiatrist because I wanted to, I, I was really struggling with despair day in, day out, but my life was fine, so it must have been something chemical. Um, and so I went to see a psychiatrist in the hope that they would say, oh, it's because of this thing, not because there's anything actually going on emotionally. It's because you've got this particular thing going on, and I can just, you know, subscribe something to you that, um, oh, sorry, prescribe something to you, um, <laughs> that, that will make things better, um, which has been the case for lots of friends and family of mine. Uh, so when I saw her, and she was this perfect balance of grace and firmness, and she talked to me for quite a while and then said, yeah, um, so tell me a bit more about your work. I was like, no, no, don't worry about that. That's fine. It's actually a really wonderful place. But tell me a bit more about it. And anyway, after quite a few sessions of me avoiding this, she said, why don't you take a little mental health diary and just kind of each day track how you're going and then after a month, bring it back to me. And then I did. And then she kind of handed it back to me and said, just have a look at these days here. I was like, yeah, it's work, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Hmm. I'm such a good storyteller that I can tell myself a narrative which I really, really believe to save me from having to confront what I really don't want to believe. And what I didn't want to confront was the fact that God had delivered me from such darkness into this new season, this new good place where everything was much better. I couldn't... I couldn't... confront God with the fact that God had failed me again by bringing me into this place which was really still very shitty and hard. Now, having done a bit more work, I don't really blame God for that anymore. But that was what was going on under the surface, was the God that had, I couldn't confront this feeling that I had that God had failed me again and had not protected me again. So I protected God from God's self 
I don't want God to be disappointed with God either. That's just the kind of caring person I am. I mean, how embarrassing. (laughs) But there's this whole subterranean world below that if we're not careful, our prayer never touches. And if we're not careful, we make sure we're too busy to avoid it. And sorry, too busy to confront it. In fact, we get so good at this that not only do we protect others from God, sorry, others and God from our deepest parts, but we hide this knowledge from ourselves. We sometimes choose to look away. Other, other times we keep it on the periphery of our vision. For those of us who are like level 10 experts at this, we manage to never even know about it ourselves until one day it causes our lives to implode in a crumbling heap or we lash out viciously at someone we love or we create enough distractions to avoid confronting it that we find ourselves in rehab. We end up protecting God and ourselves from what lies below. If prayer is going to be truly transformational, it must at times reach what sits below the surface. I've just come up with a few, a few signs. Signs that prayer isn't reaching the deep, deep. When you find yourself protecting God from things deep down, shame. When you find yourself protecting yourself from God, the God that would reject what's deep down. Yeah. When you find yourself protecting yourself from yourself so you don't have to work out whether you should be fearful or ashamed. Denial. <laughs> when you find yourself protecting God from God's own failure. Disappointment. Signs that prayer is reaching what lies below the deep, deep. When you trust that you are lov- lovable regardless of what exists in your depths and that God is present in all things anyway. That God, in fact, is not the God that hovers above the surface, but God is the same God that Jesus was, that walked through the mud, that had B.O., that fell in love, that had his heart broken by friends, that wept for people, that was betrayed, that suffered, that lost. What might help us when it comes to this and prayer, is developing a sense of kind light. Celtic tradition calls this kind light, light that is friend of the darkness. In Celtic tradition, darkness um, doesn't refer so much to evil as sin, but as to secrets that dwell inside ourselves that need to be told but need to be coaxed out. And fluorescent light is not light that's kind of the darkness. Fluorescent light drives secrets back in, but kind light, candlelight, firelight are safe. They're friends of the darkness. They allow what's inside us to slowly reveal themselves. They allow us to confront ourselves as we truly are. And so there's no easy solution to this, but maybe a suggestion is to foster kind light in our prayer lives. And we've been using this image here for our prayer series, which is an image of John laying on the chest of Jesus, which traditionally has been understood as hearing the heartbeat of God. Fostering this kind of idea in prayer, that we are the one who leans our head against Jesus' chest, that we believe that God has to be at least as nice as Jesus. 
that we believe that as Jesus holds John, the self-proclaimed disciple that Jesus loved, that he holds us too. Philip Yancey, um, in his book on prayer, makes a comparison between sex and prayer. That prayer at the start is a little bit like sex. It can happen anywhere, anytime. Very little effort required. But the longer you're in a relationship, the more you actually have to set a scene for it. Prayer being the same. But sometimes lighting a few candles, running a bubble bath can, can really help. <laughs> So our homework this week, (laughs) with prayer, not sex, but, you know, take it as you will, is to light a few candles. Um, If you need to, physically do this. Sit down to pray and actually light a candle. Put music on. It opens you up. It makes you feel warm. Have a conversation with someone. There's that sense of kind light about them and then pray with them. Use this picture if you need to as an icon before you pray. Try and sit still for long enough and avoid the harsh, cold, fluorescent, floodlit glare of the interrogation God. Find some Bible verses or poetry which remind you of God's kindness of the fact that you are the beloved. And slowly, slowly, as you immerse yourself in kind light, light that is friend of the darkness, see what you allow yourself to face that sits below in prayer. There's really good reasons to hide from God. Sometimes, sometimes because of our view of God, we need to. But I guess our encouragement as a community as we bravely and very slowly walk forward in prayer is that we don't settle in that place, that as we feel safe, that we can work toward, walk towards a place of kind light where we actually do feel safe to let the stuff that lies below come to the fore and still call ourselves beloved. We're going to eat and drink communion together now. Um, there's another place of kind light. Communion, the table where all are welcome, all are welcome. Where we've been invited to eat and drink of love that has been poured out on all humanity. Not by the God that hovers above or sits in the sky, but by the God that walked amongst us. That was close, that cared, that wept. We're going to receive that and eat and drink together. So I'd like to invite you um, to gather around the table and grab a cracker and some juice or a bit of cracker because we don't have enough for a whole one each. It's outrageous, not that extravagant. Um, And then hold that and I'll read a poem and then we'll eat and drink together. Please. Just invite you if you feel safe to just to close your eyes and these words wash over you. It's a poem called For Light by John O'Donoghue. Light cannot see inside things. 
That is what the dark is for. Minding the interior, nurturing the draw of growth through places where death in its own way turns to life. In the glare of neon times, let our eyes not be worn by surfaces that shine with hunger made attractive. That our thoughts may be true light, finding their way into words which have the weight of shadows to hold layers of truth. That we never place our trust in minds claimed by empty light, where one-sided certainties are driven by false desire. When we look into the heart, may our eyes have the kindness and reverence of candlelight. That the searching of our minds be equal to the oblique crevices and corners where the mystery continues to dwell, glimmering in fugitive light. When we are confined inside the dark house of suffering, that moonlight might find a window. When we have become false and lost, that the severe noonlight would cast our shadow clear. When we love, that dawnlight would lighten our feet upon the waters. As we grow old, that twilight would illuminate treasure in the fields of memory. And when we come to search for God, let us first be robed in night, put on the mind of morning to feel the rush of light spread slowly inside, the color and stillness of a found world. 